Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices Blog Talk Radio News Program, and I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. My guest today is Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D., of the Goddard Space Flight Center Knowledge Management Architect and Chief Knowledge Officer. Ed Rogers and I have become pretty good friends since we met some years ago now, it seems. But let me explain. The Office of the Chief Knowledge Officer, OCKO, is responsible for assuring the center operates as a learning organization. That's very important. It is responsible for policy and guidance on lessons learned, knowledge management, and learning practices. The OCKO is led by our guest today, Dr. Edward W. Rogers, Goddard's Chief Knowledge Officer. Dr. Rogers has held the position since 2003. Recently, I saw The First Man, the film starring uh, Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. And, of course, uh, most of America... Uh, indeed, the world are all aglow in the memories of the successful moon landing 50 years ago when I was about 10, which included Michael Collins, the command module, uh, Chris Kraft, mission control, uh, Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon, by the way, and of course the first human being to set foot on the moon, Neil Armstrong. And I want to spend some time in, in this first segment talking to Ed about his recollection, uh, and mine too for that matter, of that amazing event in human history when a human being set foot on the moon. So first of all, Ed, Dr. Edward W. Rogers, welcome back to the show. How are you? Great. Thank you, Marcello. Always good to be with you. It's always great. We have great chats regardless if we're concentrating on the earth or not. But, um, Absolutely, and, the, and your listeners only get to hear a part of it. So I know. We have quite lengthy <laughs> chat, but uh, hopefully they'll get the best part. That, that's right. I'm wondering, um, for me it was, uh, um, the moon was all excited, all the adults were excited, it was on the, all the black and white televisions and so forth, and Walter Cronkite, I remember that because my parents made me sit through it every night. Uh, but, mm-hmm. um, but tell me, um, as... Um, 
you, of course, were obviously younger too, and, and you've sent me photographs to prove it. What was that like for you? And it, was that inspiration for your becoming such a major part of NASA? Well, it was, uh, it was an inspiration to the world, I think. Uh, estimates were that one-fifth of the entire world's population watched, if not live, then, you know, as live as could be, the uh, original moon landing, which, yes. is, uh, which is a huge phenomenon uh, worldwide. Yes. Um, I was in Saudi Arabia at the time where I was growing up, so I was all of uh, 11 probably. Uh-huh. At the time, my father is a, was a physics physicist, a physics professor, and so he was uh, very interested in obviously these topics and would often take us outside to look at stars uh, and constellations, of course, and, and follow the planets, uh, but also uh, to look at the uh, satellites that were mm-hmm. being put up into space. He would uh, we would look for them and track them. You could see them going across yes. the sky if their timing was right. And uh, he explained to us how they worked, of course. So, yes, it, it instilled a, from my uh, father and uh, my family who was interested in these subjects. Uh, and then, of course, I was going to a, you know, a small American school for expats there in, in Dauran, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And we were all you know, glued to the, uh, to the to TV or whatever we could get, radio, any, any news we could get of it. And um, our class, as, uh, as in the picture I shared of, uh, with you of us, there we built a replica module of the uh, Apollo uh, thing, and uh, some folks from the nearby U.S. Uh, air base there got us some flight suits and helmets, which we could you could see they're hanging all oh, off of yes, us. Oh you yes, know. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we got to wear those and uh, sit in there and then pretend to, you know, call back and forth to each other. We had a we, we put on a like a play, almost a reenactment for the class, uh-huh. three of us. And but everybody was everybody that I know of or met was taken taken by this uh, event. And um, what was really striking about it was it was yes it was a U.S. achievement and the Cold War and the U.S. flag was there and all that. But there was more than that to it. It was it was uh, it was more than that. It was it was a humanity thing. It was there was a big we yes. we human beings have reached the moon. And, uh, and, you know, America might have done that or led the way for us, but it was almost viewed as a humankind yes. achievement. Yes. And I think that was really important for the times, for those of us who lived through those uh, difficult times. I mean, very questioning, fusing, you know, as the 60s were here, especially in the U.S. and other places. That was a, that social event, the social aspect of it is overlooked when you look back. But at the time, I think it was very big. Yes. Very big, a very big part of it. Well, well, I certainly remember being glued to the television. There was no question about that. I didn't. I, I don't know that I knew everything that was going on, but it was certainly exciting trying to figure it out. And as I said, of course, as uh, everybody knows now, we grew up with Walter Cronkite. So yeah. when, when he spoke, <laughs> you know, it, that in itself was a big deal. But it was an amazing thing to watch that and. And and to look back at those pictures now, you think it they they don't because we've been so what what it's spoiled by digital reproductions now. Um, mm-hmm. But it it um, it still was exciting even if we didn't know what we were speaking for myself what we were looking at at the time. It was an exciting. I mean, just the television broadcast from the moon, let alone yes. getting to the moon. 
I know. television broadcast capability itself was cutting edge. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do remember being fascinated, but maybe maybe that was a, a, a little uh, foretelling of or foreshadowing of my uh, being in television, because I do remember, now that you mention that, that was the big deal that got me glued, is that the television was coming from the moon. I do yeah. remember that. Wow. All right. Well, uh, tell us more about, you know, Memory Lane a little bit. And after all, you you have since uh, um, met um, most of the people involved with this, and you certainly are working with the people who've come since at uh, uh, at NASA. Um, how... Um, how did you, growing up after that experience, did, did your interest in space grow as a result? I think it was a generational thing almost. Uh, you know, I think all of us, uh, if you ask a classroom of, uh, of 30 kids in that time, you know, who wants to be an astronaut when you grow up? Yes. Probably everybody's hand would go up, yes. save one or two, you know. Yes. Um, that was very typical. I mean, every every kid's dream was to be an astronaut, um, and kids, you know, God bless kids who dream. They keep us dreaming, and they keep us feeling young, right? Yes, yes. We get old, and we realize that that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but but you know, kids dream, and it, it makes life uh, vibrant. And I'd say uh, everybody I knew, you know, dreamed. I mean, some more vocal than others, uh, all the way to people like. You know, Kalpana Chawla, a small girl in a village in India who mm -hmm. dreamed of being an astronaut. Well, she did one day become an astronaut. Yes. I mean, there's the, obviously there's many who dreamed and who didn't. But uh, some of these dreams actually came true. And uh, the impact that that had on, as I said, not just America yes. and U.S., but around the world was, uh, it's really hard to measure. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it really can accurately be measured by just looking at historical facts, you know, and, and, and images of the day. You have to almost have to feel that ethos that the world has changed yes. for all of us. Yes. Was just palpable almost everywhere. And it, but it was it was just the universal almost that you could uh, and it was acceptable. Sure, yes. it's great. Everybody dreams of growing up and becoming an astronaut. I mean but it wasn't clear exactly what that was that was different. I mean, our life went on the same. You know, we you still had to go to the supermarket and buy your, you know, supplies the next day. I mean, but it entered our vocabulary in, in some interesting ways. Yes. Uh, a couple of examples. Uh, I know we've all probably heard, gosh, you know, we've, we've been to the moon and back, but they can't figure out how to get me a driver's license. Yes. <laughs> you know, or, or, or the toaster doesn't work, you know, or you're stuck in a line at the airport. You no, know, they can go to the moon and back, but they can't schedule an airplane, you know, or yes. something. And lines like that became very uh, common, sort of. So it was sort of almost a raising of the expectation of what technology should be able to do for our lives and make things effortlessly and effortless and, and perfect. Yes. And yes. because they did it, and, and it wasn't by any means perfect going to the moon. I yes. mean, they they had some interesting uh, some interesting issues. Many of the stories have been told. Mm -hmm. Things. Uh, that could have gone wrong, and but yet they checked and rechecked and had backup plans, and you know the NASA way, and it, and it worked. But you know people don't have six toasters on their cupboard, you know, mm -hmm. just in case one doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You buy one toaster. If it doesn't work, then it's like you know, well, it broke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yes, but NASA doesn't work that way. That's for sure. No, there's no single point failures, or you try to eliminate single point failures as much as possible. So if something doesn't work, you reroute and keep going. You know. 
or there's some mechanism that will allow you to go around or sidestep or, or reach it in another way. Mm-hmm. So they, they spend a lot of time doing that, obviously, and that's sort of the NASA way, but we don't do that in normal life mm-hmm. because uh, we'll just buy a new toaster. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it. I'm just thinking, you know, the more we, we chat about it, uh, I can't remember which came first, to tell you the truth, but the old Jackie Gleason show, To the Moon, Alice, To the Moon, I wonder. I, I wonder if he said that before we went to the moon, or landed on the moon, or Neil got out there, or was that after? I, well, I wouldn't know. I was growing up in Saudi Arabia, so oh, I wasn't yeah. watching Jackie Gleason. <laughs> well, I, I do. Rem, I, I was too young to really remember anything except that line. He was funny, and mm-hmm. uh, my parents, like Walter Cronkite, they watched. Uh, I, I know they watched him a lot. But anyway, yeah. I'll have to ask them on that. I'll look that up. That's a bit of TV. But I think history. what's interesting, if I take your drift, is there was a lot of comedy, talk, jokes. Yes. I mean, Wells. I mean, books, movies, sci-fi about going to the moon or what yes. life would be like on the moon, or fantastical stories of aliens living there. You know, all these kinds. There was yes. a whole genre or several oh, yeah. genres of that kind of information. And then one day we actually went there. Yes. <laughs> and so I think we don't have that today because people have grown up with having been to the moon. And so there's movies like The Martian and stuff or Gravity, which although they stretch physics, you know, to make it yes. a Hollywood movie, they're what you might call realistically, you know, close. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, sort of believable. Whereas, uh-huh. you know, fantastical stories about people sitting on top of a rocket ship riding to the moon, you that's know, and finding right. a man eating cheese or something. That's right. What and, is, oh, that's right. It was supposed <laughs> to be made out of green cheese at some point. In, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, whatever. But I mean, all those stories, we don't, I don't think it's, we appreciate today how much of that information and literature and wisdom, and whether it was comedy or not, mm-hmm. or make-believe, all kind of was sh- was 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 shattered. Yes, because yes. people actually went there and came back, and it's a it's a you know pretty much a lifeless pile of dirt and rocks. <laughs> well, and, yes. and, <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't think we appreciate what that meant to people as well. You know, today looking yes. back, it just looks like a sci- t- technical scientific accomplishment. And of course, we know the moon is rocks and dust because we've grown up with that. That's right. Well, I think it was. Uh, even as I look back on it, but but also but now of course it and and seeing the movie was you know being that's my comfort zone. I felt it was done extremely well and and from what I know anyway, it was pretty close to the facts. I felt. Did you did you see it by any chance? I haven't seen it yet, uh, but well, I but I've heard the same from yeah. people who've seen it. Yeah. Oh well, that's good because. Because a lot of, let's face it, a lot of young people are going to find out about the landing on the moon through a, a through this movie, and I'd like it to be as accurate as possible. And I and I I had that feeling, you know. You threw out Mars, you know. I have to go there, not necessarily mm-hmm. literally, but <laughs> but it seems we're going to. But first, for all those people who think, because I remember there were a lot, a lot of media was reporting for a while there that NASA had sort of sold out or outsourced everything and was going out of business and I, I but NASA has been very busy and and one thing in particular that really struck me is that of course in 2009 2019 being the 50th anniversary 2009 uh-huh. was the 40th anniversary the, the the there was water ice discovered on the south side of the moon or the south pole of the moon yeah so they that. had indications of this uh, before so when when NASA, they say they discover something, or scientists in general in these kind of areas, 
it, it we, we, you read it more as it says discovered, but uh, it's actually more of a, a confirmation. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had indications from some early probes that there were, you know, these are like indirect indicators. Someone sees on a spectrometer a measurement that yes. looks like the signature of water, but they didn't actually see the water. They gotcha. saw indications that water would make that kind of signal, so there must be water there. Or they looked in a moon rock and found some remnant molecules of water, so the water must be somewhere. What they confirmed in 2009 and subsequently uh, was that there was, you know, significant water under under the surface. Uh, and which would be the possibility of enough water to actually use, uh-huh. which yes. is different than saying this rock, which weighs a pound, has 25 molecules of water bonded to some of the chemicals in it. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, there's water in the ecosystem of the moon, but that's very different than saying there's water in volume that's in some form that could be collected and used. And that, so they confirmed that there is by the by what they did in the 2009 and later Chandrayaan Chandrian one so that was a NASA instrument uh, mounted on an Indian uh, satellite I love and, that uh, I love that explore. yeah it was a great explore and Chandrian two is just getting ready to launch which the Indians have done and this is going to make a lander and a rover uh, all and an orbiter all around the moon to try to explore this further well, you went right to my next question, which was, how did you discover water ice? Now, every time okay. I hear it, I hear, no, 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 that's great. Uh, every time I hear the term, they say water ice as though it's one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it one thing that we're talking about? Well, they don't want to say we discovered water oh. blankly because the, the, the average consumer will assume there's a bowl of water jiggling around. <laughs> All the water that has been observed is in the form of ice gotcha but okay. if you just say ice what do you mean frozen yeah. carbon dioxide frozen you know, methane because uh-huh. that's also exists on other moons and satellites in our solar system so they say water ice meaning it's h2o in the form shape of ice okay i thought to that but i thought i'd better ask oh, and one more thing before we must go to a break but i, I w- would love to know also i understand that this water ice can be used as rocket fuel yeah, so the three biggies are you need water for rocket fuel because you can separate the oxygen and hydrogen into their respective elements, and then when you recombine them, that's what a rocket engine does, mm-hmm. burns oxygen and hydrogen. You also get water for the human use you yes. know, as water, yes. and you can also generate oxygen from the water by breaking it apart again and using the oxygen for you know enriching atmosphere for breathing. So, so those three things become really critical. And if you can even use one or two, the rocket fuel being the largest yes. by volume and weight need, but the others are equally need, then, then the possibility of sustained life on a distant planet, planet ob- object in the solar system suddenly becomes possible. We can talk about that more. Oh, yes. We're definitely going to talk about that. That is a great teaser because that's what, where I want to start after the break staying on another planet for a longer period of time, the ability to do it, and why. Stay with us. We are having a grand eye-opening experience conversation with Dr. Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D., Goddard Space Flight Center Knowledge Management Architect and Chief Knowledge Officer. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Imagine that one day another planet like ours should appear on the horizon. 
This is the setting for the surprisingly human, spare little story of Another Earth. Driving under the influence, young would-be astrophysicist Rhoda is distracted by sighting a new planet on the horizon. She collides with another car, killing the family of John Burroughs. Years later, upon her release from prison, Rhoda seeks redemption by visiting John's home, only to find a lonely, broken man. By now, it has been determined that the new planet is part of a parallel universe, an exact duplicate of our own, even peopled by our exact twins. However, when the two worlds interact, paths begin to diverge. Could it be possible to travel to the new planet? To take up a life not yet shattered by loss? Could Rhoda find absolution by starting over? Forget the preposterous science here and even the science fiction. The more intimate focus in another Earth is on the questions we ask ourselves every day. If I could begin again and do it right, what would I do? And if I could step outside myself and take a good look, whom would I see? Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk News Radio Program. My guest today is Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D. He is the Goddard Space Flight Center Knowledge Management Architect and Chief Knowledge Officer. We talked a lot about the OCKO in, in his introduction, but it is the the office of the Chief Knowledge Officer is responsible for assuring that the center operates as a learning organization. And as I said before, this is extremely important and, and why one of the many reasons I enjoy speaking to Ed so, so much because NASA is doing incredible things, but part of all of that being so incredible is that they're learning more and more and, of course, sharing that knowledge not only with each other but with the world. So let's just jump right back into it. Speaking of knowledge, we were talking about water ice, and, and now I, I get that and how we, the things we can do with it. But Ed gave us a little teaser right at the end, which I wanted to jump right into, and that is a lot of what's going on with water ice and other things that are being learned in the previous missions is that we're getting the ability, is that correct? Is that a good way of putting it out of staying on the moon? And the point of that would be to learn how to live on another planet and and why? Yeah, so, so the... the connection to exploration if you look at the history of exploration even of the earth different aspects of groups or people who went to different places across the oceans or whatever they did mm -hmm. the turning point in that successful exploration was the ability to use local resources so you could bring so much with you on a boat yes you could catch a few fish on the way but when you got there you needed to plant your corn have your pigs, you know, procreate and get more food and grow sustenance and find local water sources and building materials. And when you did so, then you became successful. Uh, otherwise, you just passed by and left and left a footprint or two, which mm -hmm. is what we've done to the moon. Yeah. We've been there, left a footprint and come home. Yes. So what they call this is ISRU, in situ resource utilization. Could you say that just a little slowly for me again? In situ resource utilization. Okay. All right. ISRU. So this is there's a whole issue. There's a whole focus on this now saying that is the principle that we need to figure out how to achieve if you want to sustain 
human beings in space, whether they're on, a, on another planet or on the moon or in, on, on their way to somewhere that's going to take a long time. Somehow you have to be able to do that, to take everything with you in your knapsack, so to speak, yes. that you're going to need for a two-year expedition. You know, clearly that's very difficult. So there's different versions of that. There's also versions of using local resources. There's also the staff concept. So when people climb Everest, uh, they don't carry their food for you know five days or weeks all with them. They they put it. They have people go ahead and stash it and cash it. Oh yes. And then you when you reach there, there's food waiting for you or oxygen bottles or whatever. So that concept is also a valid concept. A little different technique, but the same idea. You don't have one knapsack that's going to last you for three years. That's just hard to do. And it's really hard to do when the when the first step you take is getting out of Earth's gravitational pull, where it costs huge amounts of energy mm-hmm. in order to do that. So if you have to take a really, really big knapsack with you from Earth ground, you're very limited in where you can go. And that's been our that's been our uh, our limiting uh, one of our limiting factors, not the only one, but one of the limiting factors. So they're working very hard, and thus the interest in finding water to be able to make rocket fuel and water and oxygen, you know, on the moon and kind of prove that principle. I mean, they talk about other things, uh, 3D printing materials, you know, so you can use local resources and you 3D print tools and and, and replacement parts and things like that. There's there's at least two more aspects, I believe, that are are fundamentally important, and then we'll talk about how they're going to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them is radiation. Mm-hmm. So they have to they, they haven't they need to work on some solutions to radiation because once you're outside of the Earth's magnetic shield, uh, solar radiation uh, becomes uh, very difficult for yes. humans to handle, especially yeah. at long long exposure periods. Mm-hmm. So they're they're working on ways of doing that shielding and doing things, building habitats that are shielded. I mean, you don't want to take a hundred tons of lead with you to just you know create a vault. Yes. So they're looking at some creative ways of of doing that. And the, and the other one is autonomous operation. So mm. we've done a lot of work on autonomous satellites that can go up and robotically figure out where they're going to do and what they're going to do on their own. But this is one of the difficulties of operating in an environment, say, on Mars. As you know, the rovers, they move very slowly. Yes. Because they take a look around them. They, they, they send that information back to the Earth. The Earth plots it and sees where they're going to go, sends up a correction. Uh, tells them, okay, tomorrow you're going to go 15 meters to the left. And so it goes 15 meters to the left and stops and Mm. then sends a picture back to the Earth. And so that time lag and delay and processing creates a a very slow pace of ability to move when you're tied to Earth communications. And once you get, I mean, the moon's very close by, it's just a small delay. Mm -hmm. But when you get to Mars and you go out farther, the delay becomes, you know, as you saw in the movie, the turnaround of communication makes it slows you down to a snail's pace, yes, which yes. for a rover, rover will happily wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so what yes. I mean by autonomous operations is not all computerized, but whoever's on the ground needs to be able to make decisions and move and have the resources to do that. Mm. And most of our space flights are really all controlled from Houston control, mm-hmm. or ground control, even when there's humans on board. They rarely make autonomous, completely independent decisions. And though that's a hurdle we also have to claim get get by so that they can be equipped, trained, informed, have resources in order to make their own decisions and really kind of set their own course and fate. Yeah. And I think that was very interesting that they brought that up in the movie The Martian when they're when the ship is circling back to the earth and they 
disable the ground communications and override them so that the ship will go back to Mars and rescue him. Hmm. That, that to me was the sort of Hollywood's way of saying, we're aware of you have this issue, we're going to put it in the plot. Yes. Uh, and they did, and uh-huh. it's all, and of course it's the drama aspect of it, which yes. is what gets the human interest in the movie, so they were brilliant to do that, but that's a real dilemma, and we'll have to figure that out. Yes, yes. What about this commercial resupply? I mean, it was like home delivery or something, going back and forth to the International Space Station? So I think the issue there is, or the concept there is, NASA has limited resources to figure out, you know, space exploration. And things that are, you know, can become routine or could be purchased as a service mm-hmm. probably should be. They can do it cheaper. It's repetitive. It's not really learning in terms of new technologies. That's refining things clearly, obviously getting better at it, but it's not breaking big new ground. Mm-hmm. And so let uh, let the other commercial companies do that. Let them send our food supplies and waters up and back to the station, and let's spend our resources on figuring out how to build you know, an architecture of systems that's going to get us to the moon and get humans to Mars and back, which is kind of the, the con- concept that NASA should do what other people aren't doing. Yes, gotcha. and, and that's fine. That's yeah. fair. Except they're you know they're they're catching up quickly. Mm-hmm. It was maybe yeah, it'd be honest to say it was a little difficult for some NASA people to let go that other people are launching stuff to the station. It seemed sure. like that was our prerogative. Of course, but uh, not really. I mean, you know, if someone's willing to have a delivery truck for you, uh, and they can, they're doing lots of other commercial rockets and things that make it cheaper for them to do. That saves us money. That money that we could use to do new and exciting exploration type yes. of things that other people aren't willing because there isn't a commercial interest in it. And that's what you mean by <clears throat> buying services and buying landers. Uh, so they're looking at that for the moon opera. Some of the some of the aspects of the lunar uh, system architecture that they're trying to develop. They're trying to see which parts of it could be done in that kind of a manner to introduce this good old American entrepreneurship and innovation and competition Mm -hmm. into the plan rather than just saying NASA will go off, give us billions of dollars and we'll figure out how to do it on our own. Yes. There are pieces of it that we need to figure out and there are parts of it and certainly integration of systems. So I'll give you an example. In the original Moon program, one of the big decisions was what we called the system architecture of how you get there. Mm-hmm. And just to simplify, one of the big debates was around, do you launch a rocket into Earth orbit, then you launch, when, and with, a, with a, say, a loon, with, so its payload is a, is a thing that goes to the moon. Yes. Then you launch a second rocket, which has astronauts and supplies in it, and then you put them together around Earth, and then you ship them to the moon mm. and do the landing. That means you have two rockets, which yes. means you can send different amounts of material than you could with just one rocket versus the architecture that they actually use, and Von Braun argued for this, which is why he built the Saturn V, Mm -hmm. that it would be simpler, and they argued there's some benefits to putting it all on one rocket, launching the whole thing into Earth orbit, shipping the whole thing to the moon, and at the moon separating and sending a lander down and back up to the command module, returning the command module, and and then the entry capsule was based on that. So they they did the lunar orbit, rather than an Earth orbit, and they did it on one big rocket, the Saturn V. So, I mean, that's oversimplification, but there was a big debate about that architecture, how you should do that. And to their credit, that's the debate they're having now, mm-hmm. is how do you architect the system, meaning, and they're talking about, if you've read or people have looked at this NASA gateway concept, they're trying to build a 
a kind of a gateway station that would oscillate between the Earth and the Moon and sort of a crazy orbit. So you could go up, dock with it, and then you could undock with it, land on the moon, come back, dock with it, come back with it to the Earth. And uh, and so they're trying to figure out the right architecture, and that's what we mean by architecture. Where are the pieces, and how do they interact with each other in space? Mm-hmm. And what's what's both efficient as well as effective? And then what once you have an architecture, then you can say, well, this piece of it, say the supply of parts or supply of food or supply, that could be done by you know a commercial company, mm-hmm. and we'll do this part. Excellent. And so, and so they're having those discussions, and I think that's great. That is great, and and exciting, and and the way you explain it, uh, I mean, you do make it so we can understand, and it makes sense. It just makes sense. You're building blocks, and uh, there are different there are different views of how it should be done. So yeah. it's hard to make progress until you've settled on an architecture. So some of the what we hear about recently, you know, with the administrator making comments about we're going to the moon and all this, and some of the it seems like all of a sudden NASA is doing a lot about this. Well, they've been talking for years about the architecture, and they're kind of settling on an architecture thing, which means now we can talk about what we need to build and what pieces we need. Yes. It's kind of hard to do that until you've got an architecture of how it will actually work. Well, you've told me before many times, it's, there's nothing that NASA does uh, in a year. I <laughs> know. Uh, you, you know, the planning that goes into this is decades. And yes. uh, and 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 for that matter, in 2020, I understand they're launching astronauts from American soil for the first time since the space shuttle. That mm-hmm. has been in the works. How long? I mean, that's been quite oh, a while. Well, before the shuttle ended, they were talking about yes. it, uh, yeah. and then of course that picked up with the with the announcement that the shuttle would be retired. But the, a lot of those discussions is what I'm alluding to. That they had to figure out the architecture. Do you build a really big rocket? Do you build a small rocket? Uh-huh. Do you build a rocket that you get small rockets that launch many pieces and you put them together in orbit? You know, I think like a, an assembly uh, in, in, and then from there you move out or, do you, you know, same kind of kind of questions they went through with the Apollo program. Obviously, it's different today. But yes. The question of how are we going to actually have the pieces and how are they going to fit together and, and, and interact with each other before you go off and start building stuff? Otherwise, yes. you get you know you get the cart before the horse. Yes. And so it seems like you're not doing anything for years when all that machinations are going on. What I'm alluding to is some of that's become clear in the last year or two, which has enabled NASA to then look to the public. Looks like they're leaping forward, but they've been working on it for yes. all this time. Yes, it never stops. That's the point. Never no. stops. It's like it's even more than New York. It never sleeps at NASA. <laughs> Yeah, no, people. Yeah. It's a busy place. It's a busy place. This all brings us back to my mind, anyway. We'll we'll see what you think. Back to the, I hesitate to use the word original when we talk about NASA, but 1960s uh-huh. American technology. My family were big John Kennedy fans, and and uh-huh. and I grew up, of course, loving and missing him. And but we romanticized a lot. But one thing, it, we should be honest enough to say that that marvelous speech about we're going to the moon wasn't just about let's go to the moon. It was about proving American technological superiority. And, yeah. and but nonetheless, as we've already said, at least in the accomplishments of NASA, it has brought the world together. Each time another barrier is uh, is passed. We become uh, the human family as opposed to a planet of nations. What do you think? 
Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, that, as we were talking earlier, the social aspects uh, at a global level of the moon landing uh, are hard to fathom today looking back. It's uh, become accepted that we're all on the same, you know, uh, ship, good ship Earth. Yes. Traveling through space. That was not the case no. uh, prior to that. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> and those uh, really began the whole uh, dynamic of a change of thinking, the whole Earth movement, the whole awareness of planet Earth, and the fact that we're all on it together, and it's a system, and we got to figure it out. And all of that kind of took off. Uh, with the awareness that came from the uh, from that concept, that mental concept, as you said, humankind. Yes. Post uh, post the moon landing, it's, it certainly doesn't mean people didn't have that thought in their head before, but it certainly became a, a global phenomenon after that. People picked up on it. And maybe yeah. maybe quite literally, we had to go out of this world, be so that we could envision that because most people and I didn't I didn't realize this really until I was in graduate school President Eisenhower actually said one of the things he regretted is that he had left John Kennedy with a cold war as a child that's all I knew and I thought the cold war was something that had been forever uh, uh-huh. and and right. but you know the cold war created a situation and again, talk about oversimplifying. It created a tension that mm-hmm. I think the landing on the moon dissolved to a certain extent. Is that? It certainly helped. Okay. It certainly helped uh, begin the thaw. Uh, I think it uh, to your earlier point though about technology as well. I think it uh, what was amazing about the NASA program in the '60s and in the early '70s was it really kind of did both. It had this uh, unifying uh, human experience achievement aspect to it. As you said, a NASA announcement would be, you know, news around the world and yes. pay attention. But it also contributed to the American technology leadership mm-hmm. uh, in a separate way. I mean, because NASA in the 60s was really driving the yes. digital technology innovation. That's not the case today by any means. Mm-hmm. NASA is a purchaser of uh, and a very small purchaser in terms of net impact to the market of these big IT companies and digital companies and even Boeing or whatever, if they lost all their NASA business, it would you know barely affect their bottom line. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're a small piece of their business in terms of commercial airline and defense projects and, and, and just the IT market in general for everything from phones to computers. And mm-hmm. uh, But that was not the case. In the, in the 60s, uh, NASA was really driving a lot of that research and that development and that new new technology and so they were pushing the edges things we're pushing now tend to be uh, more specific and fields materials you know specialized material development fibers and things that can be used for multi-purposes communication things laser communications for example and other things there's there's a very specific field but it was much much broader impact i think in the 60s yes that people were uh, sort of aware of now you, you can find all kinds of mass impact but you have to be more technologically savvy to go into the details and see where where it happened but it's still it's still happening it's still contributing quite a bit of technological proudness it's just not we're not uh we're not the wave we're just in the wave <laughs> uh, contributing parts of it yes they clearly were the wave in the 60s and absolutely that time period yeah absolutely and and being a part of this enormous human uh, endeavor, I think is at the very least is just as important as being the the big kid on the block initially and technologically. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean NASA has contributed in a way to 
science around the world that's pretty hard to uh, measure. Yes. Uh, because you find scientists in many countries, whether they're doing astrophysics or pure space science or even just related fields, who did their training or did some work with or were influenced by work that NASA did because it attracts people yes. to come yes. do things. And then they learn stuff. Uh, there's uh, a, a guy in India I met who started a LIDAR mapping company Hmm. to map cities in India based on his inspiration from doing his graduate work in the UK, but from inspiration from NASA work and science and got into the field, went back and found an application. He uses airplanes oh, wow. and maps, maps cities and is contributing to water resource use across India in an amazing way. I mean, so how do you measure the ripple impacts of those kinds of things that inspired people who went off and did tangential things, but their original inspiration was because someone use LIDAR to map things on Mars. Wow, wow. Yeah, I, I, you can't even add it up. I mean, it's not to claim that we influence everything, but I'm just saying the influence, has, the ripple effects of those influences go way beyond what we can even observe. And I just happened to run into this one gentleman who was starting a company, and uh, it was very, very interesting. To see. You get a glimpse, like, wow, here's a, here's a butterfly that came back. Yes. Wow. wow. <laughs> All right. We're going to have to go. This is, uh, it's just incredible. And of course, as I'm, I'm sure I always say to you, you need to come back because uh, things keep happening. The, the world is evolving and so is outer space, it seems. At, at least as we, the more we get to know about it, the more it is an evolution uh, for us here on Earth. And I, I remember my mother asking my dad once, um, why do you suppose they felt they needed to go to the moon or something like that she said mm -hmm. and my dad turned and said because there's so many things that we're going to learn by making this trip so much technology so much is going to uh it's going to and you've just put that in a, in a capsule if you will for us and i greatly appreciate that because it takes me back to some uh, very personal memories as well Okay. Wonderful. Yes. All right. Dr. Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D., Goddard Space Flight Center Knowledge Management Architect and Chief Knowledge Officer. Ed, <laughs> it's such a personal and professional privilege to be able to call you, Ed, and to know you and, you know, it, uh, and to have you as a guest. I, I get to share all of that with everyone else. How's that? Always a pleasure talking with you. We always have a good chat. We do. All the best to the family and uh, all the relocation and everything, okay? Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. And for more information, be sure to visit nasa.gov. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. As a child, Philippe Petit loved the thrill. It became his dream to walk a wire between the highest towers in the world. In Man on Wire, we get to accompany Philippe on one of the greatest wire walks ever. His 1974 assault on the Twin Towers of New York's World Trade Center. Seeing the film now, we can never put out of our consciousness the haunting image of the towers, nor escape the impact of the 9-11 tragedy. But far from tainting the experience, our memories give it a poignant added dimension. Using the technique of intertwining both staged and actual images, director James Marsh has created an extraordinarily realistic thriller. We accompany the gorilla-like team as they plan the assault, illegally enter the buildings, evade the guards, and rig the wire. And then, 
Magically, Philippe steps out on his 200-foot steel cable, where for 45 minutes he cavorted and danced 1,350 feet above the streets of Manhattan. Whether we think him daring or insane, he is an artist who provides a transformative event that we are blessed to share with him in Man on Wire. Petit was found guilty of disturbing the peace for opening the door to dreams. Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. America, from Charlottesville to Trump's Go Back Where You Came From. Our bankrupting brander-in-chief is a weapon of mass destruction, sparing few cherished American institutions. So isn't it time we refrain from identifying his behavior as merely distractions from his mountain Russian Assange WikiLeaks political and legal problems and stop allowing him to lead us by the nose in his game of ring around the rose garden as he does our media. Yes, our nation's chief bully specimen is feeling challenged by people he feels are only for groping. But if you think Donald Trump is defeated, please revisit his proud confession. When someone attacks me, I always attack back, except 100 times more, because this is Trump's way of life. Thus, our old pro chess-playing speaker wisely chooses the tortoise over the hare, knowing it's better to elect a Democratic Senate for indictment and potential jail time than settle for an impeachment slap on the wrist. Trump continues to prove, like any cornered animal, he will not go gentle into that good Tuesday 3 November 2020 night, for he has cast his lot with fine people on both sides. Go back where you came from, and, perhaps most telling of all, it doesn't concern me, because I know many people agree with me. Indeed, our sane and rational thoughts for America post-Trumpence must prepare now for those all across our country salivating over photos of unarmed people of color shot in city streets or asylum seekers caged in American detention centers, for both they and GOP have been trumped by the stench of Make America White again. Donald Trump's need to be praised eliminates any ability to keep a secret, be it Russians or ICE raids or his real intention that goes far beyond mere distraction. The Dems were trying to distance themselves from the four progressives, but now they are forced to embrace them. That means they are endorsing socialism, hate of Israel and the USA. Not good for the Democrats. Tag, we're it. Dueling tweets, however, fixate us on the problem, one whose ability will never rise beyond the simplicity of a short attention span. Listen, those who are not among the 54% seeking sweeping change that sets us free from corporate gouging, governance by fear of losing supremacy, and the domestic terrorism of a president equating disagreement with him to treason fuel the coming storm. Our fate yields to our choice the narrow path of reason to unity, or the broad road of chaos to destruction. Worshipping at the Tower of Deceit, Racism, and Inhumanity guarantees freedom's demise. To recapture our balance, wisdom beckons us to be a nation of people who dispel denial, eradicate ignorance, and make the wind and the sea obey our energized, though Johnny-come-lately, attempts at climate justice. 
MMO from a GOP strategist to Trump administration concluded a census citizenship question would disadvantage Democrats. This is the character of a Twitter-in-chief colluding with social media stormtroopers fond of conspiracy theories, hailing the Southern Cross, wearing ammunition belts in public parks, and murdering peaceful opposition. Meanwhile, blotched by the yellow streak of rented conservatism, honorable humanitarian investors with $34 trillion demand urgent climate change action. But USDA exiles climate scientists to Koch Brothers, Kansas. The point is, we have ensconced Trump into our social diet. A secret Border Patrol Facebook group where agents joke about migrant deaths and post sexist memes. So now we need a cleanse. Resisting not just DT, but the delirium he resurrected in America. Unlike Trump and company, we must persist with the dignity, intelligence, and honesty he lacks. For in all probability, Trump had no idea that the congresswomen he attacked are, arguably, more American than two of his three wives. And therein festers our exceptional problem. Trump's GOP is the visible infection come to a head atop our historical foundation of America's molasses to rum to slaves triangular trade, economic security stabilized on the backs of antebellum enslaved families, 1919's all-American red summer, and the crooked white line from the White House of Tallahassee's Dazier School for Boys, to that which the Trumped elected for a more imperfect union in 2016. Truth is, each of us has a destiny, but whether for good or evil is our choice. Fifty-seven years ago, President Kennedy both proclaimed our going to the moon and two Khrushchev missiles in Cuba this far but no farther. Fifty years ago, Americans landed on the moon. Yet, 20 years ago, John F. Kennedy Jr. died in a plane crash just minutes away from his earthly destination. If we stop resisting the real enemies of a colorful American dream, America will die. If we don't start resisting climate change, the world will also. Yet, know this, only love remains. Anything we do that mirrors the hypocrisy of Mike Pence the tactics of Mitch McConnell or the racism of Donald Trump defeats everything America was created to be. Thank you. Now join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Com website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.